Welcome to the JACCP podcast. My name is Jerry Bauman, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today we're talking to Dr. Joseph Guglielmo and Dr. Sean Sullivan about their paper published in the inaugural issue of JACCP entitled, Pharmacists as Healthcare Providers, Lessons from California and Washington. Dr. Guglielmo is Dean of the University of California at San Francisco College of Pharmacy, and Dr. Sean Sullivan is Professor and Dean of the University of Washington School of Pharmacy. Dr. Guglielmo and Sullivan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So let me begin uh, with a couple questions about your paper. Um, and I'll start uh, with a question for uh, Joe, Dr. Guglielmo. As reading it, in uh, California Senate Bill 493 that was passed in 2013, it confirmed that pharmacists could be uh, designated as providers. Could you review for us the journey of the successful passage of that bill and perhaps speak to the partnerships with other healthcare professions that appeared necessary? So as a preface to the eventual passage of the bill, I would start by saying that this bill really was preceded by at least five decades of legislation to even get to this point. And in our paper, we highlight that actually it goes all the way back to the 1970s where the earliest uh, manpower pilot projects in California took place to expand the scope of practice of pharmacists to more clinically focused activities. That evolved over several decades to the point that essentially pharmacists particularly associated with healthcare facilities really could practice uh, as broadly as possible. However, the weakness has always been, I think this is true nationally as well, uh, in terms of impact on community pharmacy practice. And this is where SB 493 focused essentially. And it is an interesting one because uh, while that bill while the efforts took place to bring that forward, there were two other bills that were partners with it, one benefiting nurse practitioners and one benefiting optometrists. And so back to your question in terms of partnerships, the earliest partnerships were between all those organizations, pharmacist organizations, including the California Pharmacists Association and the California Society of Health Systems Pharmacists, but also the California Association for Nurse Practitioners and California Optomic Association. And I, I believe we call that the formation of the Californian, uh, Californians for Accessible Healthcare. So you understand the politics were going after the lack of primary care physicians and the possibility that these other professions could fill that gap. But what really happened over time is that the California Medical Association really opposed our other colleagues, our nurse practitioners and uh, the optometrists. But ultimately, while they did not support necessarily SB 493, they at least dropped opposition, which ultimately allowed it to move forward. So that really, um, I, I think it was less, the, the, the one collaboration that did work was between the California Pharmacy Association and CSHP, the California Society of Health Systems Pharmacists, Less so uh, did we benefit from the collaboration with the other healthcare professions. Great, thanks. You know, in the legislation, the name advanced practice pharmacist is used. And 
I was wondering why that was chosen, and and then also could you include some of the uh, what went into the legislation, what makes it necessary to be designated as an advanced practice pharmacist? Well, sure. Um, well, I can't tell you exactly why the, the name was advanced practice pharmacist, but that is what it is today. I will say there is a little nomenclature change that's taking place and that now uh, the, the designation as APP is no longer taking place. It is now APH. And so those individuals who in fact have uh, received this designation, the certification, much like RPH, they put APH um, after their name, suggesting that in fact they achieved advanced practice pharmacy uh, pharmacist uh, designation. In terms of the necessary pre prerequisites, it's really quite simple. Uh, anybody who receives the advanced practice pharmacist designation has to have achieved two of three of the following. Number one, an accredited residency. Number two, uh, certification by ACPE or other designated uh, certifying organizations, or number three, um, 1,500 hours in a collaborative practice uh, opportunity. And any two of those three allowed for designation by the State Board of Pharmacy as an advanced practice pharmacist. Now we can talk about that perhaps a little bit later. But in some respects, this limits the number of people that really are able to get this advanced practice pharmacist designation. And considering the real goal is to try to expand community pharmacy practice, in some respects, those three uh, are sometimes difficult to achieve. So just to be clear, the, the new abbreviation, APH, is that advanced practice healthcare provider? It, it still designates the advanced practice pharmacist, and that individual uh, enjoys essentially the independent ability to serve as a provider. I will say it's important to state that it isn't just the advanced practice pharmacist in the state of California who's been designated as a provider. In fact, perhaps the most important part of SB 493 is that all pharmacists who are appropriately trained, including not just the advanced practice pharmacists, but those that um, enjoyed other uh, sides of the SB 493 bill, which were things like uh, being able to uh, furnish oral contraceptives and other contraceptives, nicotine replacement therapy, travel medicine, etc. Those also filled uh, fit under a provider uh, designation. So. The advanced practice pharmacist is just a piece, a very important piece of the now official designation of pharmacists as providers in the state of California. Great. I understand. And, and another thing, just to be clear, is the, the second criteria was that board certification by, for example, the Board of Pharmaceutical Specialists? That is one of many possibilities. For example, someone who is certified as a diabetic educator, that would also fulfill the qualifications if you wanted to go with certification or accreditation. So also in your paper, you note that as of uh, the spring of 2018, there were 279 pharmacists that had been designated as advanced practice pharmacists. 
what are you expecting in the future? And in terms of the number of people who pursue this de designation and, and a expand their scope of practice. In light of the fact I knew we were going to have this um, podcast, I did uh, contact the state board last month. And uh, at that moment in time, in October, there were 372. So <clears throat> it's continuing to move forward. But I would say slowly, uh, in terms of what I expect for the future, um, I think this will continue to climb about that way. And I'll repeat, it may be more as important with the designation of the advanced practice pharmacists as those that move forward on those other areas, the contraceptive uh, therapies and travel medicine and the like, it, it may be every bit as important moving forward. So my expectations really relate back to what I said before, the, that in a way it's ironic that you had to have two of those three uh, to move forward for advanced practice pharmacy uh, position. But community pharmacy, a lot of those people, a residency is not a common uh, sort of antecedent sort of opportunity in, as opposed to healthcare systems where it's quite common. And similarly, the opportunities for 1,500 hours of collaborative uh, management is also not something that's common. So in some respects, I would argue, maybe we weren't successful as we could have been by taking those three as being the areas that we had to move forward. But frankly, the politics of it and what the state was willing to allow uh, really weighed into this. So I think it's gonna be slow uh, for the reasons that I said, um, but I guess we're still quite pleased that we've moved forward. We'd rather consider this a pilot and assess the, much like a hypothesis being tested, prove or disprove that it works with real outcomes moving forward in these first several hundred pharmacists. You know, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a major step and uh, shows a pathway for the rest of us in the country. One thing I also noted in your paper was that Senate Bill 493 did not establish reimbursement for clinical services by pharmacists. But in 2016, a subsequent bill did. So do you see, this, you sort of touched on this before, do you see community pharmacies and particularly chain pharmacies aggressively pursuing this, what could be a new revenue stream? So uh, I would have to say at this moment in time, uh, especially the, the way you asked that question specifically, I would not term um, their pursuit of this revenue stream as aggressive. Um, <clears throat> I, I think uh, the chains particularly, I think are very business oriented. And I think they would have to be convinced that there is absolutely um, a good business plan behind this toward moving forward. So I do think it's an issue, but it does cause me to take a, uh, a pause to say the following. It says, it may well be at the end of the day that reimbursement is not even the right model for clinical services. In fact, it's more doing what pharmacists should be doing anyway, and that is ensuring patients are on the right medications. But the healthcare system or the accountable care organization of which community pharmacy is often part of, that that ends up being the mechanism by which 
pharmacists uh, fulfill these expanded roles. And, but we still believe trying for the reimbursement is the right thing, but we recognize, again, we consider it a pilot once again that may or may not be the right reimbursement model in the future. Great. Thank you, Joe. Let's turn to the state of Washington and Dean Sullivan. Um, as I understand it, Sean, in, in Washington, provider status was confirmed through the successful passage of a bill called Every Category of Healthcare Provider Law. But as you state in the paper, reimbursement from payers for clinical services did not routinely follow until uh, 2013, about a decade later. Could you review for us what happened for this to occur in those 10 years? And in other words, how, how did we get, how did you get from provider status to payment? Yeah, happy to. And nice to join the two of you on the podcast today. So uh, what happened over that 10-year period, I think, was relentless advocacy that had been present in earlier decades, but continued uh, from state association leadership and key pharmacists uh, in the state. But we also saw a lot of success in terms of pharmacist provision of of clinical services. Uh, The way that we run our CVTA programs in the state, that's collaborative drug therapy agreements, it's been very visible and quite successful. We had rapid growth and success of vaccine provision in the state. And of course that provides a a visible marker of pharmacists doing things other than uh, traditional dispensing roles. And then uh, we, we also had pharmacists step up in terms of uh, providing special services around naloxone provision, Plan B provision. All of this validated the importance of pharmacists providing clinical services. Um, simultaneously, there were, there were a number of legal and legislative challenges, in, including with the state's uh, Office of the Insurance Commissioner, all of these things cumulating in uh, the development of Senate Bill 5557 that was led by uh, a legislative advocate and pharmacist by the name of Linda Parlett. So, so it was sort of a conflagration of all of these things happening at the same time that ultimately led to the passage in 2015 of Senate Bill 5557 that brought um, reimbursement to what was happening already, which was clinical provision of services uh, in the state of Washington. That's great. Thank you. You know, after um, Dean Guglielmo reviewed what went on in California, what what do you see are the differences between what happened in Washington and what happened in California? Well, you know, Jerry, what was interesting, and, and I know Joe and I talked about this a lot, is that we we really didn't see many big differences. What we saw were a lot of similarities. That is, we saw our state's pharmacy leadership and key healthcare and public partners continuing to support and advocate for better patient access to appropriate health care. And when you start from that position, it's really easy to see that there are a lot of healthcare providers that should be playing a role uh, in the delivery of healthcare in our respective states. Uh, 
particularly in areas that are highly underserved. We, we also saw that the, the evidence base uh, for uh, pharmacists and providing unique services uh, began, you know, began to develop more robustly. And um, that plays a role because when we get asked, you know, what's the evidence that what you do matters, we could point to this evidence base. And, and I think thirdly, we were able to capitalize on legislators who had an interest in supporting not just pharmacy, but supporting um, patient-centered care and population health that would bring care down to uh, the community level and recognize that, you know, if everything happens to be physician-centric, it doesn't really work as well. I, I should say that um, for, for us in the state here, the fact that community pharmacists were and have been providing vaccines uh, for, for quite a while now, it's really added to the public visibility about what pharmacists can do for population health. And, and, and that helps when you talk to the public and legislators about what pharmacists do. There, there is one difference, though, I'll point out, and, and maybe Joe wants to comment on this as well. And that is that in our state, um, our, our leadership here did not want to create a special category of advanced practice pharmacists and use that as a designation. That would have been very difficult to do in our state. We, we felt that being as inclusive as possible, allowing uh, all pharmacists to play in this space was an important goal. And in fact, doing so was consistent with the goal that we had around expanding access. So expanding access doesn't work so well when you say, you know, only a very small group of people can provide that service because you often find that that small group of people are clustered in centers of excellence in highly populated areas. And that runs sort of counter to the need to sort of meet um, sort of healthcare delivery requirements in underserved areas. Well, let me, let me ask a question for uh, both of you. What um, do you see any remaining barriers uh, in in both California and Washington? Sean, do you want to take take the first stab? Well, I'll, I'll toss one out, and, and Joe sort of hinted at this, and and I agree with Joe. Uh, you know, one of the barriers, and I don't know if it's a barrier; it's just it's just going to be a challenge. We are rapidly moving away from uh, a fee-for-service environment uh, on the West Coast to uh, a system where we are paying providers and healthcare delivery systems, accountable care organizations, integrated delivery systems, whatever you want to call them, we're paying them on a population basis, a, a capitated basis. And so we're going to need to make sure that what we do as pharmacists fits into a system where we are part of a, a, a salaried workforce that's delivering care in a cost-effective manner given these, these sort of reimbursement contracts we have now that reimburse on value and quality and not on quantity. In addition to the, the business plan that Sean is suggesting, which is evolving, I think the other thing that is an inevitability 
that's a barrier in community pharmacy practice is frankly the lack of healthcare information. Uh, how can a community pharmacist be well prepared to give good advice, say, in the treatment of hypertension in a patient or diabetes if there is no access to healthcare records? So I think Sean and I believe the two barriers are number one, fiscal, uh, shaped broadly uh, as, as highlighted by Sean, but absolutely healthcare information as well. It's interesting when Sean and I were putting this paper together and asking for feedback from others, it, 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 it's fascinating to me that there are, there are some that do not believe that necessarily access to healthcare information should be a barrier, but we're, we're fairly certain that any healthcare provider uh, needs to have as complete a record as possible of patient records to be informed deliberate and uh, beneficial to uh, your patient's health. Absolutely. And I, I would add here, Jerry, that we point in the paper to a few models uh, that exist where the integrated delivery systems are linking with community practitioners and uh, as part of that linkage are providing them with richer, deeper clinical data so that when they are in a position to make decisions, they have the full record as, uh, as Joe's described, as opposed to having only part of the record and are blind to perhaps a, a large amount of information that's gone into uh, developing the, the care plan for the patient. Great, thank you both. Well, let me end by um, sort of congratulating you on these efforts in both states, you know, clearly these states have uh, been leaders in the country and are providing a pathway for others. But in that regard, do you have any advice for other states? Uh, maybe Illinois. Um, what, um, what can you share with us about trying to pursue provider, both provider status and reimbursement, uh, whatever the model, value-based or probably not volume-based in the future. So maybe, Sean, if you don't mind, I'll, maybe I'll take the first stab at answering and I'd welcome what, uh, what you think on this. I would have to say, frankly, exactly what happened between California and Washington is a good starting point. What I mean by that is, is that there's a lot to be said to benchmark efforts from those of others and look and see where each of us respectively maybe um, were successful, but also highlight where we failed. And I would have to say, uh, singularly, it's like, you know, all boats uh, floating to the same level. I think looking for best practice would absolutely be, I think, the single most important way to move forward. Do not try to reinvent a wheel. Um, and frankly, all of us on the phone know that the broadening of the practice of pharmacy as a profession, this is not something that came overnight, and frankly, it's still evolving. And one needs to realize it's not just turning a light switch from off to on. Really, it's slope that we should be looking for, and that is continually improving and increasing scope of practice such that this profession is really practicing at the very top of its profession. Yeah, I, I agree with Joe. I, I would say there, there's 
lots to learn from what we've done in our two states. And, you know, that was one of the motivations for writing the paper is to try to provide those lessons and give a roadmap for those who are seeking to do the same. I guess I would add that, you know, wouldn't give up. There, there's we, we have a chart in the paper that shows that there's a lot of activity across the country. And so I would say, don't give up. But what we need to do is stay focused on what pharmacists can do to support cost-effective patient-centered care and the provision of population health within um, sort of now defined delivery systems. If we, if we push this effort, provider status and reimbursement as a financial lifeline for the profession, we're sunk. So, so staying focused on patient-centered care and provision of good population-level health is how we'll get this done. That's great advice. Thank you both. And I'll end by just uh, thanking you again, uh, and most importantly, for your fine and valuable contribution to the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Thanks. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.